Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? We are building up a new world. This version of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the freedom movement that I love is a live recording of a group called No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians here in Denver, Colorado, who came together for a while for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, back with you today. I'm a UCC pastor in the place currently called Denver, Colorado, here on Cheyenne and Arapaho land, and the faith coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally. This podcast is a project of SURGE Faith and is particularly designed for white people, white people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you, and especially from folks of color, about how we're doing. The word is resistance. Well, autumn has finally arrived here where I live. The breezes have turned that crisp edge of cool, and the aspens up in the mountains are in all their glorious golden finery. Just a couple of days ago, it was the autumn equinox, that midpoint in the northern hemisphere between summer and winter solstice when there is an equal amount of night and daylight hours. From here until winter solstice is that lovely, gentle sinking into darkness and the fallow time of year, when seeds nestle deep in the dark earth gathering all they need to burst into new life come spring. Those of us who have ancestors from places like Ireland and Britain and France can know that our ancestors recognized solstices and equinoxes and marked them with ritual and ritual architecture. A simple practice my herbal teacher offers for autumn equinox is to think about what we are now harvesting from the seeds we planted in spring. Obviously, we can think about the last of the beans and tomatoes we're bringing in, but also we can think about our dreams and visions and plans. I've also been thinking about lately what seeds my ancestors planted that are coming to harvest in me and how I try to live my life. Seeds about knowing one's worth as a woman, about valuing women's intelligence and independence. Seeds about kindness and welcome and hospitality. Seeds about fighting for what's right and just and speaking the truth. As we get ready to dig into the text together, I invite you to reflect for a moment about your ancestors and what seeds they might have planted that are coming to harvest in your own life. 
Sure, there are seeds we want to just leave underground to return to dust, and we should. But also, at this autumn equinox time of year, let's take a moment to give thanks for our ancestors, that cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, for their stories, for whatever good they did, and for whatever love they shared. I'm going to talk with you about Esther, as in the whole book. There's a lot of richness in the lectionary text for this Sunday, but did you know this week is the only time Esther is used in the whole three-year lectionary cycle? When I realized that, I decided to focus on Esther. And not just the few short verses the lectionary editors give us, but the whole story. If you've not read the whole story, if you're only familiar with Esther's If I Perish, I Perish, in response to her uncle telling her, perhaps you have come for such a time as this, and then the enemy who wanted to destroy them, Haman, getting hanged, well, it's not a long read. Maybe pause here and go read it and come back. I'll give us some like highlights as we go along, but, you know, it's worth reading. Well, I'm fascinated by the story told in Esther because there are such clear lessons to draw about power. Who has it, what they do with it, power is domination and power is resistance, and about what happens to those who refuse to bow down to oppressive power. Because that's what white supremacy is, right? A system of oppressive power. So I want to dive into this text with you, this whole fascinating and troubling and wild ride of a story. This story about kings and king's men, about Vashti and Esther and Mordecai. This story about what it means to refuse to bow down, to refuse to play the oppressor's game. This is a story about power and what kinds of power there are, the power of domination and the power of resistance. So, Esther and power. Power is domination and power is resistance. So we're going to break this story down, um, most of it, almost all of it, in three sections, beginning, middle, and end, and then see what we're left with. Sound good? Ready for the ride? So here we go. Part one, the beginning, Vashti and the king. So the beginning is basically chapter one here. So three times in this whole story told in Esther, key individuals refuse to bow down with big consequences. Vashti, as we say in the South, or more properly in Hebrew, Vashti, is the first. And I want us to notice these things in the beginning. First of all, King Hasserus of Persia. He has obscene amounts of wealth, extravagance, and indulgence, as they're described here. Cotton and linen and marble and gold and silver and very much amounts of wine. So much power and control over systems, over people, over bodies. And so secure in his power, he can throw a party for 187 days. 
That's over six months. He has power over everything. On the 187th day, he commands Vashti to appear, to show her off like an object. To demonstrate his power, he sends his seven eunuchs to bring her. And Vashti says no. It's the power she has, the power of resistance and refusal to bow down. She says no. And we don't really know why, though we can wonder. I'd like to think that banquet she throws for the women gave her courage to refuse to play his game, a solidarity circle to refuse to be seen as an object. But the text doesn't say. What we do know is what happens next. The king is furious. You've heard the phrase, the personal is political. So here we see a seemingly personal event becomes a crisis for the entire empire, a perceived threat to the power of all men in the entire empire. It says Vashti has done wrong to all the officials, all the people, and they're worried other women will rebel too. So they pass a law saying Vashti is never again to come before the king and that the man will be master in his own house, in the whole empire. So notice this. Vashti's refusal, her active resistance, was not against the law because they then have to pass a law to control her behavior. Notice here how laws are created and manipulated by the powerful in order to increase their power. Oppressive impact. That's the power of domination. What happens to Vashti? We don't know. The text doesn't say. At best, she's banished to the lowest ranks of the harems. At worst, is she killed? We don't know. All we know is she disappears from the story. Part two. The middle. Two power mongers, two refusals, two dinner parties, and a gallows. So the cast of characters expands here in chapter two to seven which includes the lectionary selection. These characters are the king, of course. Haman. Haman is the king's right-hand man. He has the king's signet ring to give orders in the king's name. He loves power and hates being threatened as much as the king does. There are some funny bits throughout um, these chapters that show how full Haman is of himself, but let's be clear. This is a very deadly game they're playing. Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew living in exile in diaspora in Persia after the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. He's likely some kind of low-level court official. And he's the uncle of Esther. Esther is young and an orphan. And as we get to know her, she appears powerless, controlled first by her brave uncle who delivers her to the harem, quote-unquote brave, and then controlled by the king and his court. She hides being a Jew as it doesn't seem safe to be open about that. And finally, the eunuchs. I mention them because they are the messengers in this story, and it would be interesting to dig deeper into where their loyalties actually lie. But for now, they show us that these policed boundaries of the king's court are actually quite porous, which Esther and Mordecai use to their advantage.
So, we have the next two instances of domination and resistance in the middle of this story. First of all, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. Like Vashti's decision, we don't know why he does this. We can speculate that as a Jew, to bow down to a human, to a representative of human power, would be an act of blasphemy, an act of unfaithfulness to the one God. And also like Vashti, the consequences of his refusal are vast. Notice, once again, the personal is political. Haman's crisis, the perceived threat to his power, becomes a crisis of the whole empire. Notice again how making laws and ordinances come into play. Notice how an entire people is criminalized due to the meaning placed by the powerful on their identity and stereotyped by a manipulation of a perceived truth, that is, their difference. Haman accuses Jews, as a whole people, of following their own laws, which is true in a sense as Jews with their own religious observances, and he accuses them of not following the king's laws, which is a lie. I mean, what would it possibly serve a people in exile to not follow the kingdom's laws? Haman constructs a plot with the king involving a lot of money to criminalize and destroy an entire people. The king orders genocide. That's the power of domination. And in the face of that, we see the power of resistance. Mordecai pleads with Esther to take action for such a time as this. Now, it's interesting to me that he won't go into court himself because of some rule that people in sackcloth can't cross the king's gate. But it's okay for Esther to literally risk her life at every moment. I just want us to notice that. Esther has access, yes, but at a much greater risk. Appearing before the king without his permission means death. She could die before even opening her mouth. Nevertheless, Esther, even though she's in an immensely precarious position, says yes. She breaks her silence about being a Jew, its own act of resistance, though different, much more layered and complicated. Her power of resistance is the refusal to be silent, to bow down to her fear and her own internalized oppression. She wakes up, she takes action, and she breaks the law. She tells Mordecai what to do, telling him to enlist all the people to pray and fast. So she engages in collective action. And she comes up with the idea of two banquets with the king and Haman. Though I kind of want to think Vashti, demoted to the bottom of the harem but still around, was scheming together with Esther behind the harem's closed doors. During Esther's first banquet with the king and Haman, she lures the king in and he is ready to do anything for her. At the second banquet, she makes the stakes clear. Haman wants to kill me and all my people. Now, is the king furious because the Jews are threatened? Or because Haman has threatened his power? The text says the king is angry at whoever presumed to shame the king, to damage his reputation. We note also that the king sends Haman to his death, 
when he finds him assaulting Esther, which, by the way, the lectionaries leave out, lectionary editors leave out of this week's selection. We can wonder, is the violation of the king's property, because that's what a concubine is, is that the king's final straw? Regardless, Haman is defeated, hung for dead on the gallows meant for Mordecai, and all is well in the world again. Or is it? Part 3. The End The King's Ring and the Queen's... What, exactly? The last two chapters show us that the Jews are still under threat because this immensely, supremely powerful, I-can-throw-a-187-day-party king apparently doesn't have the power to undo his own orders? Huh. So after Haman's death, the king gives Mordecai his signet ring, the very ring which Haman had, which gives Mordecai power, like Haman had, to give orders in the king's name. So Mordecai orders for Jews to slaughter any who oppose them on the day that the Jews had been set for destruction by Haman, which is what happens. By the end of the story, Mordecai is the second-hand man to the king, clad in fine royal robes and a crown. He's been elevated into the domination system and honored. And Esther? Notice how the last lines of the book praise powerful Mordecai for his intercession on behalf of his people. But where's Esther? Like Vashti, Esther almost disappears. The ones who risked their lives with their acts of resistance. At the end of the story, Esther's still not exactly safe. She's still in the harem, still under the deadly whim of the king's favor, raising his scepter to her or not. Sure, she can declare a feast day for her people, clearly no threat to the king's power, but is she free? Is she any more free? than when the story started. Take a deep breath. What are we to make of this story? What can we learn from this story for the challenges we face today, the challenges of systemic oppression, of racism, of power as domination? What can we learn for for our own efforts of resistance? Look at some of the ways power as domination functions in the story. The massive accumulation of wealth. The powerful are not accountable to anyone for their actions. The control of political systems and people and their bodies. Threats to that power are crises of the whole system. Laws are created and manipulated to protect the powerful and to increase their power. Women take the risks and men get the glory. And entire peoples are scapegoated and criminalized. Sound familiar? The interlocking domination systems we live in today, racism and white supremacy, sexism, colonization, capitalism, patriarchy, homophobia, they function in very similar ways. I'm sure you were thinking of examples as we move through the story. 1100 examples just from my newsfeed today. 
But let's not ignore the power as resistance, the refusal to bow down to those systems, to play the oppressor's game, which, yes, has consequences. In the story, we watch people claim, I will not be treated like an object. I will not worship you and your power like a god. I will not be silent about my oppression. I will not be treated as less than human. I will break the law if that's what it takes. We will not bow down. I'm guessing you're thinking of lots of examples of those, too. The women protesting the Supreme Court nomination of uh, Kavanaugh, to be sure. Colin Kaepernick and every athlete who's knelt to protest uh, police brutality. All the indigenous water protectors fighting to stop pipelines. So much rich resistance. But again, I ask us at the end of this story, what has changed? Systems of oppression are still humming along and Mordecai is now happy to play his part. Is that what he did this for? For a place in the power machine? What is our resistance for, anyway? Audre Lorde famously said, The master's tools will never tear down the master's house. Using domination to tear down domination creates more domination. Using classism to tear down white supremacy perpetuates both. Using sexism to tear down homophobia perpetuates both. Using capitalism to tear down racism perpetuates both. What is our resistance for, anyway? For better access to domination? Or for building up a whole new world? Before I go on, I want to be clear. This problem of domination and resistance is not a Jewish problem, it's a human one. So please do not take away from my critique of the Esther story that the problem is Judaism. The problem is the power of domination and who wields it and how. And this is a perpetual problem across our sacred text and across the history of humanity. It is in no way unique to the Jews of antiquity. And let's be clear who really has the power of domination in this story. And that's the king, the ruler of the Persian Empire. Now, a big deal is made by commentators of the fact that God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. God is missing, so they say. As I thought about this question of resistance and what our resistance for is for, I noticed one way God seems to be missing from this story, which is this. Where are the prophets? We often think of prophets as the ones who are pointing out all the things wrong with society, always angry and shouting and protesty and such. But that's not quite it exactly. In our sacred text, the divine speaks and acts through the prophets, yes, to name with truth the way things are, and to keep hold of God's vision of how things could be. It is the prophet's job to be awake to the ways of the world and the ways of God. The prophets tell us power as domination is wrong, exploiting the poor is wrong, manipulating laws to benefit the powerful is wrong, controlling people and their bodies for your own benefit is wrong. 
And the divine has a bigger vision for us as humanity, a bigger heart for us than dominion that runs roughshod over the many in service of the power of the few. God has a bigger vision for us, a bigger heart for us than the supremacy systems we live under today. Whiteness, capitalism, racism, sexism, homophobia, colonization, patriarchy, these systems are killing us, the earth, its creatures. It has perhaps never been more vital than at this historic moment to understand the systems of dominating power around us, our place in them, how they define us and bind us, and how we begin to tear them down and build up a new world, reflecting God's vision for us as praising awe-filled creatures, a beloved community rooted in fierce love for one another, in justice and accountability, in beauty and heart and collective care. What is our resistance for? For better access to domination? Or for building up a whole new world? For a place in the king's machinery of death? Or for a place in the kingdom of God? tell you about my grandfather, my daddy's father, James Edward Sr., who we called Mr. Ed. He was born in Greenhill, Arkansas, and was a Methodist minister all over the state until he died. In fact, he baptized me in Winfield United Methodist Church in Little Rock when I was about five months old. He died suddenly when I was nine, and I didn't get to know him that well because he was busy a lot at the big churches in Little Rock and El Dorado where he pastored and being district superintendent for a while. I've learned more about him from my dad and my aunt's stories. I learned, for one, that he was pretty outspoken about racism in Arkansas. For example, my dad remembers Mr. Ed getting into arguments with other Methodist pastors in their living room about the Central High School crisis in 1957 my grandfather taking the side of the Little Rock Nine and advocating for desegregation. A couple of years ago, I was visiting my parents, and we got to talking about my grandparents. And my mom pulled out a stack of Mr. Ed's sermons from just a few weeks after my baptism in 1970, from his time at Winfield. It was fascinating to read them, to get a sense of his preaching voice and what he cared about. One sermon in particular has stuck with me because my grandfather was clearly addressing an issue of racism Winfield was facing, namely white flight to the suburbs. He was getting pressure to move the church from downtown where the neighborhood was changing, aka becoming less white and middle and upper class, to the more comfortable, for white middle and upper class folks, suburbs. He says they should stay right where they are, and love on the people around them, that that's what God envisions. I think about my grandfather, refusing to bow down to the oppressive power of his day 
embodied in white folks asking when the church was going to move somewhere more, in his words, convenient. In a sermon, my grandfather says to Winfield United Methodist Church, If the people of God think the only way they can exist is to look to their own welfare and try to make their presence convenient, then there is an ingrown mood to the faith that we share that has the death rattle in it. Convenient. He actually uses this word several times in this section, describing the choice facing Winfield to stay and love on those around them or to pack up their bags and move and live a more convenient life. Convenient. Quiet. Silent. Non-disruptive to the way things are. And we have to ask, convenient for whom? Convenient to whom? Are we meant to be convenient to the king? Are we meant to be convenient for systems of dominating power? Was Vashtag convenient? Was Esther? Was Jesus? Listen, Jesus wasn't convenient for anyone, not even his own mama, and especially not the ways power as domination was destroying communities around him. Jesus is clear. His refusal to be convenient for the powerful is so that all may have life, a life of abundance, a flourishing life for all. Jesus understood the power of his resistance and what his resistance was for. Everywhere he disrupted the machinery of death, he knew there was the possibility for the beloved community to take root and grow, to flourish. That's what our resistance is for to disrupt the machinery of death so that life can grow, so that life and love and care and justice might flourish for all creatures, including us. Maybe Vashti and Esther are more prophetic than I'm giving them credit for, because the fact that they say no to the king, say no to the king's machinery of death that defines them and binds them, saying no to the way things are. The fact that they refuse to bow down, refuse to continue playing their role in that machinery. That tells us they glimpse something different. They glimpse that another world might be possible. A world where they are safe, not treated like objects and pawns and playthings, not treated as less than human. So they refused to bow down to the king. And maybe we're troubled by the end of the story, and maybe we should be. And in the meantime, maybe Vashti and Esther are singing the first strains of a freedom song into our mouths. Because that's what God wants for us at the end of the story. To be free. To be free from the way domination defines us and binds us. Free to love to be in awe, free to live in these fleshy bodies with limits and pounding hearts that are a miracle of expansiveness. That's us too, as white people. As long as we are taught to fear our neighbor, that we should live lives convenient to those most powerful, something inside us dies. 
That's what my grandfather was trying to say, right? When we as white folk bow down to that fear, when we choose convenience and comfort over staying right here in the fight, our ability to love is damaged. We've exchanged a liberating life for a death rattle. And we don't even know what's happened to us because we're fed a lie, a pack of lies, and it's called truth and the American dream and normal, and it leaves us afraid and incapacitated in our ability to love our neighbor. Our black, queer, immigrant, indigenous, poor, working class, Muslim, Jewish, animal, herbal, soil-rooted neighbor. That's what my grandfather saw if Winfield moved, if they chose convenience. He saw the harm that whiteness would commit against the people he pastored. Love lost, right there where the necessity for neighbors to love on each other in the face of the powerful telling the white people not to was needed most. And I keep telling you about my grandfather because one of the things whiteness does to us as white folk is erase our ancestors, disappear our history of resistance, crush the seeds of stories that might be harvested in us so that we feel isolated and alone, Vashti standing all by herself and then disappeared. So I keep telling you about Ed Dunlap because he's our ancestor in the struggle, mine as my grandfather and yours too. We need those ancestors. We need each one of us. We cannot do this work alone, this work to get free, this work to lay down this world, shoulder up our cross, and refuse to bow down to the king. To keep our eyes on the prize that is God's vision for our wholeness, our thriving, our flourishing, God's vision for the deepest, fiercest love we can imagine for creation, for us, for each other, singing freedom songs. We will not be fooled into thinking our resistance is only for better access into systems of domination. What we will do, what we will do, is use our resistance for God's vision, for the flourishing of all life, for the flourishing of love and liberation for all creation. This is the moment for which you have been created, each of you, each of us, for such a time as this, right now, to be awake to the ways of the world and the ways of God, our resistance committed for building up a whole new world rooted in God's vision for us as loved, free, and whole. You're wondering, I'm sure, if Winfield decided to sell and move. And, well, they did, eventually, in the 80s. According to my dad, they took money a member promised only if they moved to the suburbs. All I know is their website is pretty drab. A new community was started in the downtown Little Rock building, Quapaw Quarter, United Methodist. They have an inclusive vision I think my grandfather would have liked though they're small and struggling with the demands of an historic building, from what I can find out. 
It makes me wonder what might have been if Winfield had really stayed and lived into what my grandfather was reminding them to be, really committed itself to place and loving and caring for everyone. That's what I've been thinking about as I offer you a call to action this week. I've been watching as friends on the ground in North Carolina have been working hard on mutual aid efforts to help folks during the hurricane and the aftermath of flooding, organizing to be able to go into communities official first responders have turned away from or have never even tried to go into, especially neighborhoods of poor folks and folks of color. But my friends have gotten into those places in trucks and boats and airlifts and have shared about those communities self-organizing to take care of one another. Not to mention the official aid sites being patrolled by cops and ICE and Border Patrol agents. And that same week, last week, one of my best friends was impacted by the gas explosions in Massachusetts. She too has shared with me about the incredible power of people self-organizing to care for one another during the evacuation while folks were in shelters. So much pasta and Dominican food you can hardly imagine, she texted me. How different it was, she noted, when the big official groups came in and began to control things. So as we think about how we might support communities in times of disaster, I come back to that question of what our resistance is for. In times of disaster, do we respond in ways that reinforce the structures of domination or ways that build up a whole new world? So I wanna suggest, first of all, let's support those grassroots on the ground local efforts to self-organize and build community care that includes everyone. If you, your friends, your faith communities are looking for good places to send donations and money and supplies, I have links in the transcript for both North Carolina and Massachusetts grassroots efforts that my friends on the ground recommend. Secondly, read up about mutual aid efforts that center solidarity and those most at risk from racist capitalism at mutualaiddisasterrelief.org. So this group rose up in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and seeing how those most impacted by racism and capitalism were criminalized and forgotten. Think with your people about how you in your place are preparing for disaster, natural or otherwise. How can you and your people do your part to be prepared right where you are? What assets do you have to offer? Buildings, healers, equipment, financial resources. And how will you be organized to respond in a way that centers solidarity with those most at risk from racism and capitalism and all the forms of systemic oppression. Thanks as always for joining me wherever you are on this good earth. Let us know how your action goes. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. And we'll be back next week with a resistance word from Haven Heron. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas or just want to let us know how things are going.
Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. And finally, a huge thanks again to our sound editor this week, Max Pearl. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Thank you so much. Oh,